Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Agile for Humans, Episode 4. Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. Welcome to another episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me tonight, Amitai Schleier came around for some more punishment on this Agile podcast, especially punishment when I try to say his name, but I think I got it right tonight. How did I do, Amitai? You nailed it. There we go. So no more abuse to the name. How are you tonight, sir? Uh, Much better, I feel like. My name hasn't been getting beat up, so it's refreshing. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Joining us tonight, we were able to reach out uh, I got a very special guest tonight, Mr. Bob Galen out of, I think, Cary, North Carolina. Is that right? You got it right. Yeah. Excellent. So Bob is a prolific blogger, a noted author, a podcaster, co-host of the Metacast with Josh Anderson. Uh, let's see, Bob, a certified scrum coach, a conference speaker, an all-around great guy. Did I miss anything? I was I was hoping you'd say an all-around great guy. So you completed the circle from my perspective. Thank you. You got it. That's excellent. So most listeners will well know the name. But you didn't. But you didn't get. You didn't, but I was going to say you didn't get my name right. I think you butchered. I think Bob. I think you had. You got it in the wrong. Is it Bob? <laughs> it's Bob. It's it's Bob. <laughs> this whole time we thought it was Bob. <laughs> oh no. Uh, no. Well, at least now that's clear. So, Bob Galen, author of, and I think the book that uh, most people will recognize you from, Bob, is the the Scrum Product Ownership, Balancing Value from the Inside Out book. The the excellent tome on product ownership. I think that's probably the the most notable item from the and aside from your new testing book, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit as well. So, Bob, I have a, a question for you. I'm a fan of the Metacast that you and Josh Anderson do. I love your blog. Try to keep up with it regularly. I've noticed a tone and I wanted to ask you about it or maybe a a subcurrent or a theme about perhaps some frustration in the agile world. And I'm not sure if frustration is a fair term, but there's something going on with 
coaching and with just the general state. And I'm wondering, you know, if we could dig into that a little bit and maybe we share a similar frustration in that I'm hearing a lot of better, faster, cheaper, a lot of separation of the manifesto from actual agile implementations. And I'm sensing that kind of tone in your writings as well. Do you think that's a fair assessment? And what are some thoughts around that? Well, I think it's fair. I mean, I have various frustrations um, and I try not to be a curmudgeon as a coach, but the one, the one thing, one theme that you may be sensing is I think we've lost the simplicity of the agile methods, uh, the small team simplicity. Uh, scaling is a big thing nowadays. Everyone's talking about scaling. Uh, a lot of coaches are organizational coaches or project management coaches. Uh, so we're trying to, I think we try to serve the management. We try to serve the man, if you will, sometimes. We lose the simplicity of the methods. We lose the team. We lose the quality. Uh, you know, why Why is Agile so compelling in the first place? It's not a management play. It's it's a team play. It's a productivity play. It's a customer value play. And and you have to activate the teams and, and I think we're, as time goes on, and, and I'm not the only one talking about this. Other folks are, you know, talking about, I think, I think this, Uncle Bob Martin has talked about it. Uh, Andy Hunt has talked about it. Where we're, we're moving away from the, the core thing in, Aja- in Agile that got us excited, that got us the result. Is it possible that, that going mainstream might have been one of the worst things to happen to Agile? I, th- I think so. I, I mean, I, I'll use the SAFE model. If you're familiar with the scaled Agile framework, they have this three-tiered model. And I, I think, so yes and no, I, I want Agile. I mean, enterprises exist, right? Businesses exist, and they're going to continue to exist. And we and people get paid, so they're we're working on jobs. So I think I think tiers and PMOs and enterprises are fine. It's just that we have to focus equally at the team level as much or more than we do at the PMO or feeding the managers or managers metrics and things like that. If you look at the scaled agile framework, it does. I don't think it intends to do this. But it puts the team at the bottom, but it puts the focus upward. It puts the focus on metrics. It puts the focus on portfolio management. It puts the focus on predicting and then guaranteeing predictions and train management and things like that. I sometimes talk a lot. I said, I'll feel differently if you turn the field agile framework. If you're familiar with the picture, just turn it upside down. And that makes me feel a lot better because now we're focusing on we're focusing on the team. We're focusing on simplicity. So so I do think we have to, I mean, we're existing in the enterprise isn't bad. But what's happening is we're losing that, that simplicity focus. We're making things too hard. Uh, we have pointy-headed managers, and I am one of those. Uh, and the more, the bigger the project, the more teams we throw at something. If you remember back to the essence of Agile, they were, they were solving big problems with just one or two teams, one or two, three teams. And here we are, you know, we're, we're throwing a hundred teams at it so we can get it faster. So I think some, I, I don't, I don't think it was a mistake. I think we had to go there. I think how we're playing the game in the enterprise is wrong. Yeah. Amitai, are you seeing similar tones in, in your consulting regions and, and clients and areas that perhaps misaligned expectations, perhaps misaligned implementations to values are causing some of this pain? I have the same bias towards simplicity. I think I heard Alistair Coburn say something about Agile being punk recently and that we've lost that. And that rang a bell for me, even though I don't know anything about punk. <laughs> but I am pretty anti-authoritarian. That's that's what got me here in the first place. I do see safe on a daily basis at my current client. And I guess I have a before and after picture of it that grew more nuanced. But I also, in looking at it, 
came up with a wacky idea. So let me just talk about my before and after and then raise the wacky idea for discussion. So the before was that just looking at the picture, the size of the picture, the size of the screen that I need to look at the picture made me think that whatever this is, it can't be the same category of thing that I think of as Agile. Doesn't mean that it's not agility in some form, but it can't be the thing that I think of. And what I saw in the first PI planning that I witnessed was kind of eye-opening in that it was a huge room. It was people running around with different colored vests and whistles like they were referees, not the kind that that get paid off by FIFA, but (laughs) (laughs) the kind that get paid to do some kind of organizational work in a company. And they, they ran down on a schedule and there were these giant wallpapers on the wall six or seven teams in the room, huge room. My first thought is this is nuts. What kind of planning could they possibly be trying to do with these people being coordinated and expect agility to come out? No matter how little planning they do, no matter how much planning they do, this kind of planning can't possibly produce what I would recognize as valuable. And a couple times during the day, because this was a three or four day process, a couple times I would see you know, one team working on its board suddenly realizing over across the room someone else had changed what's on their board and had a chance to see it visually the same way we like to be big and visible with our charts and went over there and talked to them three or four times is all I saw. But I thought if that happens, that starts to justify it. Then I got the kind of religion about why a big company would do safe. It's not because they think Agile is what we think it is. It's because where they're coming from, Agile isn't even an option available to them uh, on the path that they're moving along because they can't see that far ahead. It's really far ahead of where they are. What's right in front of them is maybe if we got a little more disciplined about what we're already kind of doing, the dependencies we already have, the roadblocks we have to getting things into production that are already in place and we start to sort of force the issue so that we can see them better then we can figure out what the next next step might be we may or may not take it but we can start to see better and that's what's happening in this client they they're using safe as a way to start to see what their problems are i don't know if they have the opinion that they're pretending that they're agile or not Uh, i do know that they're trying to see into a huge complicated application development program and it's helping them. But then the wacky idea is something I also had from looking at this. Why do big companies, when they develop software as part of what they do, why do they make it difficult for individual development teams to make their own decisions about what they're going to do? Easiest, simplest, and most likely explanation I could think of is that they're really concerned about risk because risk has a very long tail for very large companies and there is sweet liability targets. So if, for example, one team making its own decisions makes a bad security decision and leaves them open in a way they shouldn't be, that whole company is in trouble, possibly. So my wacky idea is, what if they didn't have to be? What if they could spin off individual companies, one per product team, and have them be subsidiaries or otherwise separate companies where the liability stops there? So that the worst case, if a team makes a terrible decision about a license or a, a, a security feature or whatever, it hurts them. That company goes bankrupt. Maybe the assets roll up to the parent. Maybe they don't. The people are fired or laid off. And the big company is home free. You know, they did that product is gone. They might have to start over, but the company is fine. So that was my wacky idea. There's a blog post I wrote about it called To Scale Agile Delegate Risk. If I, if I go back to your premise, I think it's risk, but I also think there's a bit of manager micromanagement. That, so risk is driving the control. But also, I, I want to, I see a lot of managers who are traditionally just, let's say, control freaks that we want to, we want to, we want to control what's going on with our team. That's how we've driven success. A part of that is risk. 
but a part of that is I just want to be a I just want to be a control freak, and I and I and I see the world or I see the solutions the way I see the solutions, and even my solutions could be riskier than the team solutions, but I want to drive them with my solutions. So I I don't know maybe by isolating risk you you might get you know more autonomy at a team level. I I, I resonate with managers as well. I think part of it isn't just like an organizational decomposition. It's somehow I've been with some clients this week and I, I was just with a client on the West Coast and uh, or an initial client. We're just getting to know each other and we were having frank discussions about the leadership team really struggling with letting go, if that makes sense. It's not just of risk, but letting 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 the teams have some sense of autonomy, uh, letting them have some sense of risk planning and, and decomposition of work and how are the teams going to, to form themselves and they're they're very much struggling with that. So I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, the 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 layer I'm adding is I think risk is just a part of it. I think you you know leadership, human nature is also a part of it, uh, from my point of view. I think you're right. I guess my framing device was assume that managers will be agile minded throughout the organization. What would still keep them from letting teams make all the decisions they would need? And that's why I was thinking systemically about this huge risk tail and why it was that. But you're right. Uh, I shouldn't assume that all the managers are minded that way. Well, and it's interesting, Bob, you bring up the, the term pointy-headed bosses. And uh, the talk I'm giving next week is teaching pointy-headed bosses to be agile enablers. And so it's, it's, a, it's a crazy difficult nut to crack. I'm trying to go the empathy route so that coaches actually speak to them as humans as, as opposed to uh, impediments. But uh, even that has its limits, especially in your, in your particular case that you mentioned, where some people just want to control the world. And there's no amount of coaching that's going to change that behavior it's except for exposing that weakness in a process and, and hopefully senior management moves that person out of the way. But short of that, the, the coaching mechanisms, we can, we can shout at the moon forever on that particular control freak issue. And I don't think there's a, a solution to it. As far as structuring companies around products, I think that's the future. I think that's what things like lean startup and, and those types of the, the lean startup machines, I think that's what they're doing. And so they are using that idea, Amitai, and they're saying a product is a company. Mm-hmm. And we're going to limit the risk of that that new company slash product to this this very narrow and focused context. And whatever happens, it's all organized around the product and the value that it drives. And I, I think in the next five to 10 years, that'll be a competitive advantage. Imagine how nimble a company can be if their focus and organization and systems are all aimed at driving value from a product. I was sure it was not an original idea. And one of the resources I was pointed at when I pointed on Twitter and, and the XP list and such was Lean Enterprise, Lean Startup, uh, a handful yeah, yeah. of other ideas like that. Uh, and it also ties into, when you talk about the competitive advantage, uh, something I saw on Twitter recently, uh, Peter Senge from the Fifth Discipline, we, uh, the core learning dilemma that confronts organizations. We learn best from experience, but we never directly experience the consequences of many of our most important decisions. And that's right. another way of looking at what's happening in a big organization. How can you tell when a decision is wrong? And one of the advantages that a spinoff would have is that you're, you know, you got a budget and you're going to see what happens to it with your decision. Well, and you're acting transparently around a product. And so bad decisions become apparent quickly. In large organizations, estimates, documentation, whatever whatever bureaucracy you want to throw at a bad decision to make it look like a good one is available to every savvy manager in the org chart. So it is very difficult to, first of all, get consensus around what was a good or bad decision and then to get any kind of sense of a consequence because the people who would suffer the consequence are ready to move on to the next 
decision, the next project and not really venture into that. And since I think at a management level, we all have skeletons in the closet. And at some point, we've all left bodies behind us. No one's really interested in in picking those up. Yeah, And big companies have annual budget cycles. I've hardly heard of any that don't. And another advantage for spinoffs or lean startups is that they can have any budget cycle they like. And that's huge because the difference between estimate-based, commitment-based, uh, long-term planning and being stupidly wrong after a while approach versus drip funding and see what works is how the budget gets funded. And so in a big company, if you don't even have the option to try to do it a different way, then there's no there's no learning mechanism available there. You just don't have it. Yeah, I think uh, this is definitely a cutting edge idea. And I'm wondering, Bob, if we can cut back over to you for just a second. I noticed sure. on your blog that you are, you're recently back from the Scrum Gathering, the big uh, Scrum Alliance gathering out in Phoenix. And I'm wondering if from the community, is there anything cutting edge that came out of that? Is there some new trend or concept that guys like Amitai and I need to be aware of and, and the rest of our listeners to, to see what's coming down from the big thinkers at Scrum Alliance? I, I'm less resonating with, uh, I'll talk about a couple of conferences. It's related to testing. And then it, I'll go back to the Scrum Alliance. So I've, I did a keynote at a San Diego conference with 250 like raging lunatic agile tour testers, traditional testers and, <laughs> and agile testers. So imagine the energy in that room. And uh, I asked a question. So it's 2015. And I, w- I was asking about Scrum Fall, if you will. Scrum or fall dynamics in 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 their teams. And so I, I looked at that as a quick poll. So it's 2015. We've been doing Scrum for 20 years, Agile for 15 plus years. Arguably, we have lots of maturity, lots of experience, blah, blah, blah. And this sample was from lean startup teams to enterprise teams. So just a, a random sampling of folks. And 90 plus percent of the testers in the room representing, you know, probably hundreds of teams in various industries are experiencing Scrum or fault dynamic. Josh actually went to a mobile testing conference and he spoke there. So his he did a talk uh, to about 120 folks, and they were developers and testers. And he asked a similar question. What we're talking about is deep agile. What I'm trying to characterize is deep agile behavior, lean behavior versus not, right, in the team. And he had about a 70 to 80% uh, return where bad agile or scrummerful dynamics or marginalization or silo-based activity, however you want to characterize it. And then I'm hearing some of that same thing. We, I was part of a coaching clinic at the Scrum Alliance, the Scrum Gathering. There's a, they, one of the activities there is to give away free coaching. So coaches, there's a board where you line up coaches who volunteer with, with uh, attendees. Uh, and we, I don't know how many coaching uh, we had, I think, 250 or 300 coaching engagements of 15 minutes each or 30 minutes each, something like that. And it's just, a, I guess, the point, cutting to the chase. I don't know if there's lead, the leading edge discovery is that we're not leading edge. <laughs> that we, <laughs> that, wow. That, that we think, uh, pointy-headed pundits like the three of us, we think that we're, you know, we're we're looking to the future and we're trying to we're trying to project. Well, this is the the third, you know, the third millennia next thing for agility. This is where we need to be going, and you need futurists that are talking about that. But I guess the revelation for me is, you know, the uh, the the situation the, the situation on the ground is is not in the third millennia. The situation on the ground is folks are really struggling a lot. That's getting background. You know, we were talking about coaching and respective managers and things like that, and coaching managers and not marginalizing them. I th- 
I, I come back to the basics. It's why I'm coming back to basic, agile basics, the enterprise level and focusing on that because I think that's important. Maybe we need to deal with managers differently because I think that's important or whatever it is to address just basic operational characteristics because we're not we're not doing what we, we think we're doing or at least that's the samples I'm getting recently. What, how do, what do you guys think? React to that. It's an excellent observation. We focused on process in opposition to the manifesto, and this is the, the result. So we have SAFE, we have Scrum certifications, we have prescriptive Agile, which I think is excellent for new teams, right? I share your opinion on that, Bob, that you have to be prescriptive with new teams, and then you coach them up and you teach them and you, you move them forward. But we haven't progressed out of that. We're still prescriptive. And so management sees that and they think, I don't have to trust teams. I can just be prescriptive. And I think that's the that's the separator. We haven't taught management how to trust, and we haven't taught teams necessarily how to speak and act in a way that earns trust. Instead, we tried to do check the box. We did our daily stand-up. We did our task breakdowns. We we delivered some code. We're, we're checking the box on the sprint review, the sprint planning. We have a sprint goal. We met with the product owner. They're embedded with us. We're checking all these boxes but we're not getting the individuals and interactions correct. And I, I think that's where we might have missed, and, and with good reasons, because it's incredibly difficult to get that right. It's all context-specific. You can't put necessarily a book or a certification around it. Right, right. You really just have to be interested in other people and, and try to, to learn about them, to, to look at them as humans and, and interact in a constructive way. And quite honestly, in an enterprise, that's difficult. I think Tim Ottinger someone that I, I respect and follow on Twitter quite often, I think he even said in a, in a tweet today, imagine how much we could get done if we weren't worried about the harm that we're doing to each other. Just powerful tweet. You know, imagine what if you didn't have to cover your back on, on every decision and you didn't have to record every conference call. And But if you didn't have to record every call you're on, if you didn't have to throw every email that you got with some kind of approval into SharePoint because you might need it later. You know, imagine if all that was was not there, if you could trust one another, if you could be compassionate and have empathy for one another, I think we would be in the next step of our agile transformations. And that's that's the crux of the problem is that the the bootstrap process for people who don't know agile yet and want it getting them from where they are to where something flips in their brain and life is different, is impossible to predict. doesn't matter how much systems thinking you've got or how much uh, psychology experience you've got. It's different for everybody. It's different for every context. It's different for every team and organization and management style. On the one hand, you know, if, if Scrum Alliance didn't provide a certification process, someone worse would, right? So <laughs> we can't leave that spot empty. Right. But it's also the beginning, we hope, of a journey. And that itself is fraught with peril because people see certifications as goals reached and they're not. They're beginnings. For me, where Agile has fallen down the hardest, in my experience, is that it has been divorced to some extent, uh, more or less in some places, from the technical practices that make it work. And yep. so I come from the angle of primarily a technical coach, although I love people and that's why I do it. But for me, if we, if we do only Scrum, for instance, but we're developing software, then we are, as they say, quickly building legacy code. Right? And then we follow her. So, right. so for example, last week at self-conference here in Detroit, a fellow coach here gave a talk on legacy code refactoring. And I said, you know, was what was interesting about that compared to other legacy code talks? And he said, nothing. It doesn't need to be. You can't give this talk too many times. Everybody needs to hear it. 
Nobody's heard it before. It doesn't matter how many times. All the ears in the world, you could give this talk forever. And I think that's the same thing with Agile as a whole. The skills you need to do it are things that people need to acquire. The approach to it that makes it live and sing and bring out the best in people and let them turn their cognitive energy away from self-defense and into investing in each other and bringing out the best in each other. We will never be able to sing that song enough. We just have to keep singing. And I, I think part of the, the tune that goes along with it is we've got to get the idea of better, faster, cheaper out of Agile because that's the pitch right now. I think that's the pitch that the big box three-letter uh, acronym consulting firms are selling to executive level management. Better, faster, cheaper. And I'd rather see the message of safer for people, more consistent from a delivery standard and, and minimal risk because of that consistent delivery. If we can start talking in those better terms, especially the safety, I'm really interested in having people be in a safe environment. And right now, I don't feel like large organizations and, enter and enterprises are necessarily safe. And it's for some of the defensive posturing we mentioned. I, I agree. It's, it's back to both of you. It's technical. So when I say when I say get back to basics, I think of XP practices. I think yes. of, I think of the development practices. So so when I'm talking about small team, it's not just small team size. It's small team development practices. And then right. and, and and the rich focus on those things. That's the most important thing you can do. That's focusing on the product. It's funny. And then safety. I, I was with a an unnamed class <laughs> this week, and I talked about failure. I was uh, teaching a group of testers. Uh, we had a one-day session on testing, and I talked about somewhere we got along to fostering uh, fostering risk and encouraging risk and encouraging failure and encouraging experimentation and encouraging learning. And I used the F word, and my God, I'm looking in the eyes in the room, and every set of eyes <laughs> was, was shocked. And I lost half, the, I think, a third of the class left. Not right away. They did just leave at that moment. But within 15 minutes, they, there was such discomfort in the room <laughs> from just talking about, you know, sort of the, the opportunity to learn or the opportunity to try something and potentially fail. And it was the discomfort. And I, I, I get discomfort usually when I bring that up, but not this level of discomfort. And uh, what we need, and so there were, this was not a safe environment at all. And we need, we need safety for, uh, for discussion. We need safety for retrospective. We need safety to apply technical practices as we, uh, we, we were getting wrapped around the axle of things like refactoring, or we were talking about, you know, whose decision is it to build in, you know, to build it well the first time. And uh, folks were uncomfortable. It's like the product owner should tell me how to decide or, the, or my manager should tell me what good looks like. And I, I was talking about, no, that's, that's, I think that's your decision to decide as a technologist. Uh, that's a design responsibility. That's a quality responsibility. There's a lot of, lot of discomfort with that. So we could really help. We could encourage them. We have some work to do from a safety point of view, I think. I really like Industrial Logic's approach to that. They seem to prioritize safety in their marketing materials and in their coaching approach above everything else. And they frame everything they do, even things that we do for other reasons, they tie it back to safety. Like refactoring presents safety against uh, unpredictable future stories being expensive or test room development provides safety for refactoring. Even things like that, but also uh, at the human level. And so I think they, they're onto something. There's, especially with something as, as disruptive as Agile can be, like you saw when half the people had to leave because of that <laughs> word, it's really disruptive to say, you know, it's really up to you and people maybe are going to leave it up to you and you have to leave it up to them and it's really going to be okay. 
And that's that's hard to hear. It's a huge change from what people are used to. Without, you know, thoroughly establishing safety for from everybody's point of view, they're not actually going to do what they say. There's going to be the theory that's espoused and there's going to be the theory that's in use. And so without safety, they're going to be very different. And it's that reason that I typically think of kindness as being the missing agile value. And it's a thought that it's just stuck in my head. I'm going to have to write at length about it just to get it out. But I think back to some ideas in the agile world. Let's 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 keep it basic like that. Mob programming, uh, no estimates, you know, whatever wild idea you have, there's so many people shouting negatively against it when it's just an experiment or you drop the agile grenade into an enterprise and and middle management goes ballistic. They shout it down. They react violently, verbally, not necessarily. I've never seen a physical fist fight over agile yet, but uh, I'm sure it has happened somewhere. Uh, You even see agile coaches and, and agile even proponents reacting negatively towards people who just don't get it yet. It's like, oh, you don't understand, or oh, you're a pointy-headed boss, or you know, all these things that, that we say and do, and the Dilbert commercials, and the, the memes, and, and all these things that's not inviting, so it can't be safe. And so I, I'm really stuck on this idea. I'm wondering, do you think kindness was left out? Should it be inherent? And does it solve some of the safety issues or some of the safety issues that we're discussing? I wrote down empathy while you were there as well. So I, I was I, just thinking, yeah, should we say empathy was, instead of kindness or kindness instead of empathy? Yeah. Or, or, I, or I'm adding them. I'm just I'm having a list. I have safety and I have kindness. I love that term. I'm sort of thinking about it and I have empathy there. And I'm just I'm just adding them, and it's not just at a team level. So we're we're talking about it. I like to think in tiers sometimes, in an organization. So it would be kindness, Ryan. Back to your point of you know we we've marginalized managers. So it's it's team based safety. What about management based safety? Like how how would the pointy headed manager behave if they were in an unsafe environment themselves? If they right. were if they were in an empathetic, you know, uh, they would. I, I guarantee you, there would be a difference in behavior from, from right. their point of view. So we think teams are in an un, in an unkind environment. Uh, I think most managers are in an equally to greater unkind environment potentially. So how? What if we? What if we put that up the stack? And what if we really reinforce that? I like the industrial logic. I remember reading that when they, I saw it when they started talking about safety. It was a year or two ago or something like that. They were starting to emphasize safety in context. And I thought that was a powerful sort of idea for them to continue to do. But, but yeah, I, I actually think it's a very powerful view. I think it's a gap there. I think it's a very risk. It comes back to what Amitai was talking about. I mean, risk. So I, I shot down that risk idea. I didn't shoot it down, but we were <laughs> forget that forget <laughs> that enterprise level risk crap. But coming back, I, I mean, there's there's there is risk in these environments, right? They're a non-safe environment. So how do we how do we de-risk? How do we increase safety? How do we increase empathy? First of all, we're all trying to feed our families. So we're all there with the same purpose. No one's there for free. We're all trying to feed our kids and our families and and take care of our our significant others. That's first and foremost. We all have that common denominator. And I think the second one is, I think a lot of us, and I'm guilty of this, and I've written extensively and spoken about this uh, at various conferences, we forget that none of us are born with agile thinking, right? So we all learn agile incrementally. So my background was deep traditional management and project management. I, I have abused teams with uh, Microsoft Project and Gantt charts just as much as any other horrible PM in the past has done. And, and I, I atone for my, my sins and I hope I find forgiveness and, ret- and 
later down my my path, you know, with these agile efforts that I'm undertaking now. But I, we all at one point acted that way, and we had to learn. And it's not a it's not a light bulb or a, a light switch that goes off. Even thinking through complex things like no estimates or the simplest thing is planning poker. It, it takes so many leaps of mental gymnastics for these concepts to flip because they're, they're simple but not easy. That once you get there, you get it, but then do we always give that same breadth of time to someone else to join us at that point? That's a fine line, I guess. If we say on the one hand that Agile is punk, which would seem right. to imply, I don't care what you think, I'm doing it. <laughs> Well, that that works if you're right. if you're Alistair Coburn, you can get on a stage and say <laughs> that. I mean, the guy is a rock star in our community and a, and an excellent speaker and sought out for thousands of engagements, I'm sure. But for for us, if we say Agile's punk, our management says get out. But one thing I wanted to I wanted to come back to something you said at the very beginning. It's it's yeah. from the, it's from the coaching. It's one point I wanted to make. You were talking about your talk coming up, uh, uh, you know, coaching leaders or talking about leadership and maybe partnerships. Uh, one of the thing I have talked at the last few scrum gatherings, or there are these coaches, the CSC CST retreats. Uh, where the certified scrum trainers and coaches get together. And I think you've seen this maybe in a blog post I alluded to it, where I've challenged, I've asked the question of, are are we coaching leaders or are we coaching teams? Are we just going in and uh, are we looking at our role as a, if our role is a transformation artist, so the tagline for the Scrum Alliance is transforming the world of work. The CST and CST community is if we're aligned with that that tagline, we're trying to transform the world of work uh, from from an agile point of view. So are we are we attacking or are we coaching leaders? And the resounding uh, response is no. That it's too hard for us to coach leaders. One, uh, it's not lucrative. We can't sell leadership coaching. Uh, two, uh, they don't they don't want to buy CSMs uh, or training leadership training. And I'm I'm sort of being harsh. I, I should. I should not be so harsh, but it's a much easier play to sell certifications at a team level. It's yes. a much it's a much easier play to sell coaching at a team level. Uh, some fo- some folks are doing. We're rolling out coaching here. Not myself, but some coaches are rolling out a fidelity in the in the Raleigh Durham area, and they've hired a bunch of coaches from several firms. Those coaches are not leadership focused. And trust me, Fidelity has a, a very nice, healthy hierarchy of managers. Those, <laughs> co- sure. those coaches are all focused downward. And no one, no, they're not buying upward. None of those coaches are suggesting to go upward, if you will. And, and I think we have a responsibility to go upward. I've been talking, I've been doing that in my practice lately. I actually won't engage in a coaching engagement if I can't create a partnership or at least try to start coaching with leaders, being empathetic with leaders, talking about leadership safety, and, and, and moving from a traditional mindset to an agile leadership mindset. And, and I, I think that, from my point of view, that's at least in my niche. That's the next big thing for me. I think agile getting to you know transforming the world of work, we, we have to start talking with leaders, and that's a theme you've probably seen from me uh, quite a bit. Yeah, it's something that I've I've certainly seen from you in, in the in the blog post, and it's something that I, I've been living for quite a while. In one of the earlier tr- agile transformations, I was able to lead up, you know, hardware co-op wholesaler Fortune 500 company, and what I found was 
we made the most progress once we had senior leadership on board and understanding the changes required from both the business and the IT side. And once you got that coaching done, it was amazing how fast things moved. And prior to that, basically from if you're trying to do bottom up, it's just such a slog. You know, you're you're just you're going through so many hurdles and 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 difficult terrain that it just makes the the delivery painful. And and if you don't coach up, you know, just like your your post focus on, I, I think you're just you're selling certifications, you're selling some services, you're cashing a check and moving on. To be harsh about it. I saw on Twitter today something that dovetails with this. Scrum will surface all kinds of problems, pains, and issues at alarming rate. Without yep. a plan to respond, it will demoralize. I had that conversation today where someone wants to promote Agile as better, faster, cheaper. And my initial comment was, no, it's going to be incredibly expensive up front. You have to fix infrastructure. You have to fix whatever your schemes and, and setups are from an, an architecture side, a hardware side, a website, a, whatever it is that you have, they will all show up as impediments once your, your development teams are using XP and Agile practices. And so you're going to invest tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, how much, however much it is, depending on the size of your organization, right up front just to make sure that, that these other supporting players in a software development lifecycle can keep up. It's, I, it's I such agree. a tough sell to say that, first of all, here's, here's the promise of a lot of consulting and a lot of coaching in a long time, some years. And maybe it'll get better. Maybe it won't. You've probably heard horror stories where it hasn't. And right. pay more upfront. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, it's it is hard for leaders too. I mean, again, empathy for them. It, it's a hard play for them to go to the CIO and say, you know what, I, I need coaching. It's like I'm paying you whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm paying you a lot of money, and you have a you're a director, or a senior director of a technology group. You have 20 years of experience. Uh, you have agile sprinkled somewhere on your resume, and you need you know you you and your management team need leadership transformation coaching. Uh, I think that requires safety. It goes back to safety and courage <laughs> to, to actually. Now, they do they need it? Absolutely. And will it be, to your point, Ryan, will it be a force multiplier? Every time I've seen that happen, it's been an acceleration agent. But that that con- that initial conversation, I think, is is pretty fearful for most of those folks. And they don't engage in that conversation. I've been impressed every time that, that anyone in any role decides to put themselves on the line and seek any kind of help. And the further up you go, you know, the the more self-reliance is mistakenly expected of you, the more impressed I am with their bravery. So, you know, when a team asks for some internal coaching, that's that's one thing. They're kind of admitting, like, we we wish we were better. Can you help us be better? That's inviting judgment that may not have been there before. And they're still asking. So imagine, like we're saying, empathy for the the higher-ups. If your C-level executive is saying, you know what, I'm a pretty cool dude. I got a pretty nice job. I make pretty big decisions. And I would like some help with that. That's amazing when those people can do that. It's just, it's inspiring as a human being to know that somebody with that much on the line and that many expectations on them can still find it in themselves to ask. Well, I, I added to our list, I added, again, it's not the sort of characteristics, but asking for help. And then I have bravery slash courage, putting it in that bucket of, I, I think those are some attributes. Personally, I found that as a leader, I use a, I had a three-year stint as a, at a company called Eye Contact, and I learned a lot there, and, the, and we created together a, a fairly good Agile instance. 
And one of the things I did, or it's my habit, is to say I don't know. Uh, to, so so to, to just sort of, you know, to expose that and, and to ask for help, to freely ask for help. I would bring in other coaches, for example, and to, to assess and coach the team just to have a different set of eyes. And the teams really sort of were surprised by that. It's like, well, what, what's wrong, Bob? Are you sick or something? Are you getting tired of us? And I'm like, no, I can't see everything. So I, everyone needs help. But, but to your point, that, that starts just having a senior leader do it. It's not just that example. But imagine what that does to trickle into the organization to say, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to ask for help. Uh, that's one of the enablers, I think, for that middle management tier. So it's not even just funding the coaching. It's getting, getting, giving them permission to say, I need, <laughs> I need the coaching as well. And I don't know, travels astonishingly quickly. When you see people around you doing it, you, you start to do it because there are tons of things we don't know. And all you need is permission to say it, and it, it just travels. It just travels. Exactly. So what's wrong with us that as, as people that it's not safe to ask a, a question? Because the only, the only person in the world that knows everything is Google, right? <laughs> I think Google is technically a person now, right? So I, I'm actually in a, a leadership role. I'm happy to tell my team I don't know and that they're there. We built a team up to make a good decision together. And, and what I find is that below, you know, to my directs and, and even their peers, they now pair a lot, which is something that I've, you know, you work very hard to foster. So they, they will immediately say, I don't know how to do this, but I know that you do. And so let's work together for yeah. an hour. And now two people know it. And in our in staff meetings or in, I like to walk around too. I'm a, a wandering manager sometimes where I'll just pop in and pair with, with, my, with my direct. And I'll say, guys, I haven't coded Java in the last five years, but I see you got a, you have Eclipse open. Let's sit down and, and crank out a little bit of code or let's talk about an architecture and really try to have empathy for the developers, which then, as I'm explaining my viewpoint, gives them empathy back for me. It's a mutual respect. It's a mutual trust. And all of a sudden, we can all say, we don't know, but together we're going to figure it out. And, that, and that's just powerful. We're able to do things that, that perhaps other groups and teams can't do. It's a leadership by example. I, I wrote something now while you were talking. I think there's two levels of it. There's normal operating level of safety all, along all of these lines, kindness, empathy, asking for help, bravery, courage. So when things are going normally, uh, but then there's, you know, that term when the stuff hits the fan, when the pro, when something is happening, the company is about to be acquired and dissolved. So pressure, right. so there's phenomenal pressure from whatever direction or risk is through the roof. It's how do you behave then? I always measure my agileness of how do I behave under adversity, uh, and and that's what it's really it really checks my soul, right? It really checks is it in my DNA or not? Because I'm about like I, my kids are in college and I'm about to lose my job, am I still going to be agile? I know that sounds silly, <laughs> and am I going to have to have this sad conversation with my children and and, and move them to a public school? Or something. Yeah. Uh, well, so, sorry, guys. You got to get student loans. Exactly. <laughs> but but in all in all reality, I think I, I we really need to step up when it's under pressure, and that that sends that message to the team as well. I think as well. Think of those two levels, or I try to think of it. So my personal stress behavior in that situation, I think, illuminates Ryan where your question started, which was why do people 
feel uncomfortable saying that they don't know or asking for help. So my stress behavior when stuff is hitting fans is I externalize my thinking even more, even faster, even more monotonically, even more as though I'm programming a computer, but getting it out of my head so that other people can follow me or direct me or I can follow them to a better decision that we all make. What I want under stress is, and this is, this is how I can tell that there's some agileness in me, I don't want to take it. I want to make sure that we're sharing it. And I just instinctively turn on a laser and start sharing, regardless of how you know, effective a communication mechanism that is. But so the flip side of that is that I think uh, many people, because they've been judged this way, have learned this meaning of expertise as always having the answer, of having a fount of knowledge so that no matter what, you know how to decide. And in my opinion, and probably yours, we've learned a different definition operationally, which is that expertise is knowing how to make a decision, even in the absence of knowledge. That's a lot of what agility is about, is that the, the premise is that we will always lack some knowledge and we have to operate intelligently anyway. So we're comfortable with that. We've learned to be comfortable with that and we've mastered that. So it's easy for us, especially, to say, I don't know. But people who've learned the other definition may have a hard time with it. If we're, if we're working in small increments and we're working on a short timetable, like a two-week sprint on a small slice, and we're, we're focusing on quality, we're focusing on you know, all of these, all the right things, how chaotic can it really get? If you actually put the systems in place and the feedback loops the, the moments of chaos and adversity should be few and far between, right? What's chaos? Right. So <laughs> I think Bob's example where the company's been bought and we're dissolving the corporation, that's, that's outside of our control. And that's something that I think what I try to do in those situations, and I actually have been in a similar situation where I have to go home that night and say, honey, we've got some changes coming. I, I think for those kind of situations, you step back and say, I can't control this. I've, I've been intentional about my career. I have skills and I'm going to be okay. And you have to keep that mindset for as long as you can delude yourself into thinking that. And eventually something else pops up. But when a self-inflicted wound happens on a software project, still, I think it's a matter of most people want to do root cause, find the blame, and lay out punishment, which I think is the most destructive thing you can possibly do. I think if you embrace the idea that people typically aren't failing, it's the system in place that's failing. And if you can focus on the system that led to a behavior that led to an adverse situation, everyone can swarm around that and correct it. You're probably going to have a better outcome. I saw a slightly rephrased version of that idea on Twitter recently that really stuck with me. Not that it's not the people, it's the system, but that people don't make huge mistakes. They make mistakes and the system makes them huge. Yes. I found that I like to be that a too. great framing for the idea. It is an amplification. It's an amplification of being imprecise. I, I think that's, I think that's very true. I, I guess the other thing I'm, I'm saying is under, under whatever pressure, let's say it's moderate pressure. Like I woke up this morning and my coffee wasn't hot. Uh, right. <laughs> so, so I'm under moderate stress. I'm under decaffeine. Exact. So then I re folks, a lot of folks revert to, to what previous comfort zones. And uh, so if I'm, if I'm safety, if I'm safety aware, uh, in normal in a normal mode, but you put some pressure on me, maybe I reduce that. Or if I'm empathetic to a team members, 
but only in normal mode, and then I miss my coffee, I might I might regress and become <laughs> and become unsafe. Again, and it comes back to leadership. We can so how we behave in, in under even slightly adverse conditions, like yes, uh, makes a difference as well. Not just under not in normal operating mode, but in in, in you know diverse operating modes. Uh, and so I think there's that sort of layering to to what we're talking about. And I, I actually had the opportunity to give a talk at the the Path to Agility conference this year, and it's called Scrum Master Lessons from My Four-Year-Old Son. And Bob, you've, you've just made me think of that because part of that talk is a discussion around uh, modeling behavior. And so the way that I act is how my children will act as well. And so a Scrum Master is a leader, I mean, a manager of the Scrum process, a leader of agile thought within the team, a, a, a leader of, of coaching, things like that. And if the, the Scrum Master does behave in a traditional punishment-centric negative way during adversity, so will the team. And it's no different than if I freak out at the first sign of trouble in the, in the home, the kids also have that same tendency. So I, I think it's, it's modeled behavior, it's learned behavior, but I think it's also courage, right? So you should be able to tell your peer or even your supervisor that perhaps what they're doing is not the healthiest and safest thing for the team. And that comment should be okay because it's coming from a place of creating safety, not from creating criticism. Exactly. Bob, I want to magnify what you said about the the diverse situations in which we can model the behavior we want to see. Not only that we have to model it also when it's stressful, I would add that we have to model it more when it's stressful because the lesson that people take away when they're in stressful situations is is magnified by all the hormones that are running through their body as well. And if they see that at the slightest drop of a hat, we aren't kind, caring, sensitive, and nurturing, they know that we were never kind, caring, and sensitive, and nurturing in the first place. Exactly. I, I agree. It's one of, one of my habits. Again, I think it's part of this my success at eye contact. Uh, it's just my experience. I mean, look at me for if you look at me, it's white beard. I've been th- I've been through the waterfall <laughs> mill, and and I, so I have this perception in teams of oh he's been there. It's like an old general who's been you know been in the battle, so he can handle this stuff. And I don't freak out anymore about anything. And it's yeah. and it's sort of I have this inside. I'm going crazy potentially, but it's like I there's not much I haven't seen or haven't in agile or in waterfall. But forget about me. It's just that it's just I'm calm in in adversity. And that makes a huge difference uh, to the team, to your point, Amitai. And it ripples down. It's not just a point situational difference. It's saying, hey, we can all it, it, it doesn't help us. We're going to have a different set of behavior no matter what. This is the behavior we're going to model. We are agile. No, ma- no matter what. And that's and we're going to walk through that and we'll solve things from that perspective. Yeah, it's certainly a, it's a powerful pose. It's a powerful thought. I, I can't recommend it enough. It's it, But it's also one of those that it makes me think back to the empathy for management comment because now we're putting self-awareness and emotional intelligence on top of everything else that they're doing. And uh, The list keeps growing. Eh? It does, doesn't it? So in an agile world, not only have we perhaps left them out of the 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 initial creation part but now we're putting a, almost superhuman attributes on them as well so I, it's where my my thoughts and i think all of our thoughts around empathy come in and it also makes me wish that as they were framing up scrum 
that they had actually taken the time to outline a management role. And, and basically, I look at it as you have the, the flow from product backlog to increment of software, and there's, those are two boundaries, right? The backlog to the increment, and it's outside those boundaries that management plays. And I wish they would have made that clear that uh, there is a role, that there are activities and, and things that should be done instead of just basically ignoring them. I don't know if it would have fixed it, but I think it would have made our jobs a little easier. I don't know if I'm comfortable with the role. I'm not disagreeing with you, but a cloud or something to say this is the management cloud and having attributes in it and to say in order to sex, sex, successfully support Scrum or Agile or, what, or you know, sort of self-directed teams, this, we're not going to ignore you. You, you, ha- you need some advice in this area, right? We, right. I, I agree with that. And what's that would have given the coaches at least guidance. The fact that there's nothing there, it's an empty cloud. No one's attacking or no one's addressing it. So it's for the last 15 years, it's still, it's remained an empty cloud. I mean, you're trying to fill it, Ryan, a little bit. I'm trying to fill it a little bit. But uh, I would, I, if we would have gotten it right in the beginning, I think that would have been, that would have helped us. Well, and, and I think our goal, it's not to say to managers, hey, everything you've done for the past 20 years that got you the the Mercedes and, and the lake house was wrong. I think what we're trying to tell them is, you know, there is a different way to work. We think this is a safer, better way. We'd like for you to look at it. And if they, if there was, and I, I think you're right. I think you said it better. There shouldn't necessarily be a role, but there should be a conversation within scrum about the management where they play. It would have given us teeth to coach up. Absolutely. It's like, here's why we have to have this talk because in the scrum guide, it talks about what you're doing. And so we need to have conversations. And instead, there's no teeth for that for that discussion. And, and maybe at a positive point to sort of at least close this thread, I've been having those discussions more and more with leaders maybe for the last year. Uh, I've, I've had them always, but I'm emphasizing it for the last year. The thing I'm seeing is they're embracing those discussions. They're not pointy-headed Dilbert managers. They, they, you know, if you give them safety, if you have those conversations around what good looks like, 90% of them, by and large, they, they are good people. They want to be good leaders. And if you, if you collaborate with them and coach them, uh, they resonate with that. And, and that helps accelerate the organization. I think the fact that we've sort of not had those discussions, we, we, more, we, we categorize them in a way and say, oh, well, you know, they're, they're just this. Or we tell them how they have to behave without, it, without having a partnership with them. Here's your list. I can't tell you how many uh, present, agile presentations from non-managers that this is the list of the perfect manager attributes, and we just give it to them. Uh, and and how, <laughs> how insulting is that? Uh, from a position of a partnership, let's talk about what does good look like. And I'm finding that these folks are embracing that. They're like, thank you. Someone is helping me. I've been struggling with this for three years. And I know, right. I, and I know, I'm, I know I'm doing something poorly, but I don't know what to do. Well, I think you've also noted, Bob, that I think we're coming up on our time box. And so we certainly want to be respectful of your time. I am amazed, though, that we went an hour without once bringing up the product owner role, which we didn't bring it's it. Gonna be, we didn't bring it up I at can't all. believe it. I know. How did that happen? So I guess we're going to have to try to twist your arm into <laughs> coming back to join us. But I, I did want to give you the opportunity to discuss your new book quickly, 
or to take as much time as you like, but I do want to be respectful of your time again. So you did release recently, at least this year, Agile Quality and Testing. I've got the book with me. Absolutely love it. Agile testing is an area that uh, it's not, I don't, I don't have a strong background in it. And so when I, I saw that you were doing this book, because I loved your, your, your Scrum Product Owner book, grabbed it quickly, went through it. I think you've, you know, the three pillars are excellent. If you want to talk about that real quick, I know that uh, I'll, I'll wrap it up. a lot of people, a, pe- a lot of people will find great use out of it. I mean, the thing that drives me for books in general is hitting or even the discussions real quickly is things that are problem areas, at least from my view, in agile adoption. So the management discussion we've been talking about, I find really interesting and I think it's important. Years ago, when I wrote the product owner book, there was a void for any guidance. So I just encountered product owner after product owner who was really struggling. The testing book had the same genesis of agile testing is one of those areas where, again, 15 years we've been doing agile, but I think Not testing from a a development practice point of view, but testing from a where do QA folks or where do testers fit in point of view and where does enterprise level testing fit. There's no guidance or very little guidance in that area. So I wanted to fill that. So that was the genesis behind the three pillars. We can talk about it later on, but I'd, I'd encourage people to take a look at it. The early feedback I'm getting, and I'm getting much more early feedback than we did the product owner, new folks, they're being inspired and it's working. So I'm like high-fiving myself privately in my little office going, wow, it's making a little bit of a difference. And that really encourages me. So I I think the three pillars is resonating with folks from a QA. How do we do transformations in QA? Bob, I really appreciate you joining. Like I said before, big fan of the Metacast. We're going to have links to all of that in the show notes. Just can't thank you enough for joining us. No. Amitai, it's... No. Sorry, go ahead. No, guys, thank you. Amitai, nice meeting you. I'm comic relief Likewise. tonight, guys. You guys <laughs> you guys rocked. And Ryan, thank you for inviting me. It, it's, it, was my, it was all my pleasure. I hope to do it again sometime. So at this point, what we like to do is, is give people an opportunity to reach out. How, so, Bob, where are you on the internet? How can people... Uh, Go squat on your front porch and and throw questions at you. So rgalen.com is my website. Bob Galen is my Twitter handle. And that's the and I'm on LinkedIn as well as Bob Galen. So that's the ways to get a hold of me. Amitai, how do people hit you up? Schmanz, S-C-H-M-O-N-Z. That's at Twitter or schmanz.com. I have a new competing, as you say, Ryan, podcast. It's all of three minutes long per episode called Agile in Three Minutes. That's agileinthreeminutes.com. Uh, you can hear me twice at Agile Roots Conference <laughs> in a few weeks. I'll be presenting a DevOps workshop with Lisa Crispin and an experience report similar to what I failed to convey over the network today. Uh, and one more sort of plug, not from my stuff, but for something that happened in the Detroit area recently. Uh, Self Conference was last weekend. And it's a conference that's equally dedicated to developing software and developing humans. I feel like that's a balance that should really be near and dear to us as Agilists. And they did not get all the sponsors they expected this year. So even though I'm not really affiliated with them in any way, uh, I would love to be able to go again next year. And so if anybody is listening to this and thinks that developing software and developing humans is the kind of conference you'd want to go to, uh, you can make a donation. And that's selfconference.org slash support. I'll be sure to get all those links in the show notes. It's a great cause. It's a it's an interesting conference. It's one that I couldn't hit this year, but I hope to hit next year as long as they can raise the funds and we'll we'll try to do our part with a link. And finally, I'm Ryan Ripley. I'm Ryan Ripley on Twitter, and that will lead you to agileanswerman.com and and various other activities that uh, that I'm working on. 
This podcast is available on iTunes and Twitter. We'd love your feedback. If you can leave us a comment on iTunes, uh, that would be wonderful. Five stars if you think we're great. Uh, five, st- five is our favorite number. Uh, four is also pretty good, too. So we'd love to hear your feedback. If you want to hit us on Twitter or Facebook or, or wherever else on AgileAnswerMan.com, please send your comments in. The feedback is important. It guides the discussion. And uh, it helps us give you a better product. So thanks again for listening, everyone. Guys, again, it was excellent. Hope we can do it again soon. And that's a wrap for this episode. Good night. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and scrum on.